Hello, ladies. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast teaching for Ladies Bible Study this morning. Although I'm sad we can't be meeting in person, I am kind of happy to be at home in my pajamas. We are picking up in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, which marks the beginning of what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' first extended teaching recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew. I've broken this passage into three sections. Verses 3 through 10 reveal to us the character of kingdom citizens. Verses 11 through 16 outline the reaction to kingdom citizens. And verses 17 through 48 tell of the righteousness of kingdom citizens. Before we jump in, let me read through our passage. And I'm going to begin in chapter 4, verse 23, just to give ourselves a little bit of context. And he, that is Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond beyond the Jordan. Chapter 5. Seeing the crowd, He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison." Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
But if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of its your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would pour from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Dear God, I just thank you so much for this chapter. I thank you for the ways in which it has um, has convicted my own heart, helped reveal sin um, in my own heart, and and attitudes, Lord, and um, I pray that it would be so for the women who hear this podcast as well. I pray that your, um, your word would go out and that it would not return void. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, at the end of chapter 4, we see that Jesus has been traveling around, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And we see that his fame has spread. Great crowds are following him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now, if you were to look at a map of Palestine from this time period, you would see that the crowds are made up of people from every Jewish region of Israel. This simple carpenter from Nazareth has piqued the interest of the Jews. Perhaps some are wondering if this man could be the promised one, the Messiah spoken of in the Old Testament. Perhaps they are intrigued by his ability to perform the miraculous, healing every disease and affliction. In this inaugural address, this first recorded teaching in the New Testament, we see a glimpse of Jesus' heart. In this opening chapter to the famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus authoritatively introduces us to the kingdom of heaven and outlines the character of kingdom citizens, the reception of kingdom citizens, and the righteousness of kingdom citizens. As Bev taught in our introduction week, Matthew wrote this gospel account with two unique purposes in mind. The first was to present Jesus as the king and promised one of Israel. And the second purpose was to encourage disciples and their witness in a hostile world. Both of these purposes will be present in our passage this morning. Bev also noted that as we continue our study through the book of Matthew, we should keep an eye out for three distinct themes. The first is that of an upside down or an unexpected kingdom. The second is opposition or conflict. 
and the third is the theme of fulfillment. We've already seen some of these themes present in the first few chapters of the book, particularly that of fulfillment. Interestingly, our text this morning will weave together all three of these themes, so let's keep them in mind as we continue. In verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 5, we are given the context for this Sermon on the Mount. We see that Jesus has gone up on a mountain and has sat down to teach. Verse 1 notes that the primary audience for Jesus' words was the disciples. However, if we skip ahead to the end of this great sermon, we see in chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, that when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So this sermon was for the great crowds who were following him. However, there does seem to be an intimacy between he and his disciples, particularly as we'll see in verses 11 to 16. With that in mind, let's jump into the first section of Jesus' teaching, verses 3 through 10. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As we heard a few weeks ago, Joseph R. Biden Jr. gave his inaugural address as the incoming president of the United States. Although I didn't listen to the actual speech, thanks to social media and the news headlines, I got the pretty clear understanding that he focused on the topic of unity, timely given the political climate of the past few months and weeks. Biden's objective in his address was to unite his listeners, his followers, around a central mission, as well as to introduce his presidency and his priorities. We see in these opening verses that Jesus is doing just this in his inaugural address, his introduction to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus repeats the word blessed eight times in these first eight verses. Now, this word has come to carry a sense of happy or fortunate or flourishing. In Hebrew, it would be translated as shalom which carries with it a connotation of peace or deep satisfaction. In other words, from his very first word, Jesus is saying, I know that your heart is not blessed, not at peace, not satisfied. So let me introduce you to the kingdom of heaven. Let me show you the way to true peace and lasting happiness, the way to be comforted, to inherit the earth, to be satisfied, to receive mercy, to see God, to be called sons of God, to be kingdom citizens. In these first eight verses, we are given this extravagant, filling depiction of the kingdom of heaven. As we look to the benefits of the kingdom that Jesus lists, first blessing, then comfort, an inheritance, satisfaction, receiving mercy, seeing God, and being called sons of God, we get a picture of what our hearts ache for. We've all known what it is to look for something more, to recognize the emptiness of this world, its inability inability to satiate our hearts. Just like the world, we have tried to fill this yearning with some sort of pleasure, be it by throwing ourselves into our mothering or our work, investing deeply in a hobby or a fitness school or a financial plan. Perhaps Perhaps it is in living for the next vacation or ladies' night out or for the kids to go back to school or the latest COVID restriction to be lifted. We have sought true meaningfulness, true satisfaction in what was meant to only point us to the one who can fill our yearning. 
As Augustine so aptly put it, You, O Lord, have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Jesus' opening words, these beatitudes, are music to our ears. Just as those great crowds that follow Jesus, our interest is piqued. Yes, we want these benefits. Jesus, tell me more. But then we clue into the character that Jesus has just described here. The character and heart posture of his kingdom citizens. Poor in spirit. Those who mourn. Meek. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Merciful. Pure in heart. Peacemakers. Those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Now that doesn't sound so fulfilling. That does not sound so satisfying. These traits run 180 degrees the opposite of our natural inclinations. Our natural tendencies. Jesus, I don't want to be hungry. I don't want to be sad. I don't want to be poor. But this is where we catch our first glimpse of Jesus' upside-down kingdom. Ding, ding, ding. The first of our key themes. <laughs> to clarify, Jesus is not saying here that his disciples will be those who are hungry and cry a lot. These character traits are meant to reorient our hearts upward and outward to God's will and his ways, which runs so counterintuitive to our fleshly impulses. Jesus calls us to be poor in spirit or to recognize our spiritual lack, to mourn or to be grieved by our sin, both ours and that of others, to be meek or to walk in humility, to hunger and thirst for righteousness or to yearn after new appetites, to be merciful or to walk in forgiveness and grace, to be pure in heart or to have our impure desires expunged, to be a peacemaker or to pursue reconciliation, to be persecuted for righteousness sake, or to live set apart from the world as kingdom representatives on earth. Jesus is calling all who would be his disciples, who would be citizens of the kingdom of heaven, to lay down their natural responses, to drop their fishing nets and boats, to lay down their lives and follow him. As Matthew 16, 24 to 25 record, then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now it is important to note here that living this way, embodying these character traits from verses 3 through 10, is not the way by which we gain kingdom citizenship. We are not saved by our character or by our attitudes, but only by the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Let's pray that our spirit would be that the spirit would be growing our hearts in these areas, making us more like our Savior Jesus. Next, in verse eleven, we turn to our second section: the reaction to kingdom citizens. As one commentator so helpfully put it, the beatitudes of Jesus are sometimes called the beautiful attitudes because they describe the inner character of those who are members of the kingdom of God. Realizing that the beatitudes are essentially interior. One might be tempted to think they can, live, they can be lived in isolation, away from the world that is so contradictory to the things of God. But actually, it is impossible to live these eight norms of the kingdom in private. They are powerfully social and outward when put to work. That is why Jesus crowns this with a warning and two brilliant and searching metaphors, the salt and light, that tell us how those who live the Beatitudes must relate to the world. Now in verse 11, there is a shift in tone. Jesus moves from more general character traits of his disciples or kingdom citizens to a more intimate, personal tone. He uses the word you. See if you notice it. I'll begin 
um, by looking at Jesus' warning in verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here we see Jesus expanding on the persecution initially referenced in verse 10. Not only should kingdom citizens be persecuted for righteousness' sake, but they should also expect others to revile them, persecute them, and utter all kinds of evil against them falsely on Christ's account. Probably not what Jesus' first disciples thought they were signing up for. But again, Jesus did not come to meet their or our expectations. He came to overturn them, to turn our expectations upside down. Christ's disciples or kingdom citizens should expect persecution. Jesus does not say, blessed are you if others revile you. He says, blessed are you when. Persecution will come. Opposition and conflict will come. Ding, ding, another one of Matthew's key themes. If you are going to be a citizen of Christ's kingdom, you are going to go against the grain of this earthly kingdom, and it is going to hurt. Yet Jesus also pairs this warning with a comfort. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we see in the lives of numerous Old Testament prophets and saints, living as a kingdom citizen does not promise your best life now, but it does come with the promise of a future reward, a heavenly reward. As Hebrews 11 recounts, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They were about in skins of goats and sheep, um, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Persecution, the fruit of living as a citizen of Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, while remaining physically present in this world, will be hard. But it is also a joyful reminder that we are, by God's grace, but one in a long line of kingdom workers who have put their hand to the plow, stayed the course, and will one day hear those words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Now turning to these brilliant and searching metaphors next in our passage, we shall look at them both together. Verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Salt and Light To Jesus' original audience, these terms would have carried a weight or an intensity that in some ways has been dulled over the centuries. In ancient times, and not even all that long ago, salt was used as a preservative to keep food from decay and corruption. During Jesus' day, pure salt was of particular value and could even be used for bartering or for paying paying out wages. Likewise, light held particular value in the pre-electricity era as well. Light was a source of safety. It revealed that which was hidden. It causes growth. It is the only thing that causes darkness to flee. And sunlight is one of the barest essentials for plant life, and thus for all of life. 
Jesus' reference to light reminds me of our study in 1 John, which I looked up and it was honestly a couple years ago. I don't know how that happened so quickly. Um, 1 John is full of this rich imagery of light versus darkness. It tells that God is light. Therefore, disciples of Jesus will walk in the light, even staying um, staying in our immediate context. If we look just a few verses before chapter 5 in um, Matthew four sixteen, we read, But the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Both of these illustrations, salt and light, come with a charge for Jesus' disciples to be something and a warning to not be something. For salt, we are called to live in this world in such a way so as to prevent corruption and decay. For light, we are called to live in this world in such a way as to give life to those around us. We are called to live set apart, markedly and visibly different from the world around us. As Ephesians 5, 8 through 10 instructs, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. At the same time, Jesus warns that we are not to lose our saltiness, which could literally be translated to become foolish. As one commentator put it, a foolish disciple has no influence on the world. Jesus admonishes that we are not to hide our light under a basket, but to give light to all. With these warnings, he is reinforcing that we are to persevere in our boldness, to live wholly set apart, to live before others so that they may see us and our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Living for Christ's upside-down kingdom will again be hard. Walking in purity, exercising repentance, and striving to live like Christ will look radically different than that of the world. They will notice it. They will hate it. And for some, Lord willing, they will come to glorify the Lord because of it. I think this is a really natural place to pause and ask ourselves, am I living this way? Is my life noticeably different than that of the world? Am I walking in the light even in the minute decisions of my days, the ones that no one else will ever see? Am I willing to withstand persecution, reviling, and false accusations for the sake of Christ? And thinking back to, to the Beatitudes even, do I mourn over my sin? my own and that of others? Do I have a posture of humility? Do I hunger like a man lost in the desert and long for righteousness? Again, my own and that of others. Is my life marked by mercy, purity, peace? Am I living counter to the culture, to the point of persecution, or even just discomfort? Does this make you uncomfortable? It does for me, and it certainly would have for Jesus' original first century Jewish audience. Thinking of that first century audience, let's turn to the final section of our text this morning. The radical righteousness of kingdom citizens. I'm going to read verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Verse 16, that final sentence in in our last section, um, it leaves us thinking about our good works, our good deeds before others. For Jesus' first century Jewish audience, they would have immediately thought of the law, their guide for right living, and their dictionary of good deeds. Jesus knows the hearts of men, for he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He knit each and every human heart together in their mother's womb. So he can't anticipate his audience's train of thought. Jesus continues here in his Sermon on the Mount, I know what you may be thinking. The character traits of kingdom citizens are so opposed to what you thought the Messiah would usher in. The way you are to interact with this world is so opposite to your natural inclination, so unexpected, so upside down, that you must think that I've come to overturn all of Jewish religious life and society, to do away with the law and to usher in new commandments. But I have not come to abolish, to destroy, or to put an end to the law or the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. Ding, ding, our third and final theme. We have seen through chapters 1 through 4 how Christ has come to fulfill the Old Testament promise of a Messiah. His lineage, his birth, and the opening of his ministry is continually punctuated with the phrases, this was to fulfill, or for so it is written by the prophet. Thus far, it is clear that Jesus came to fulfill the prophecy regarding the Messiah, the Christ. And we'll continue to see this expanded and explained as we continue through the Gospel of Matthew. Alongside of this physical fulfillment, though, Jesus explains in our verse here that he has also come to fulfill the Old Testament law. John MacArthur fleshes out this verse by saying, Christ was indicating that he is the fulfillment of the law in all its aspects. He fulfilled the moral law by keeping it perfectly. He fulfilled the ceremonial law by being the embodiment of everything the law's types and symbols pointed to. And he fulfilled the judicial law by personifying God's perfect justice. Or as another commentator put it, Jesus is bringing that to which the Old Testament looked forward. His teaching will transcend the Old Testament revelation, but, far from abolishing it, is itself its intended culmination. Jesus is in fact the culmination of the Old Testament, the one that the pages of the Old Testament points toward. Christ is the hinge on which redemptive history turns. He is the one spoken of from that very first conflict conflict back in Genesis 3.15, the offspring that would bruise the head of the slippery serpent. Jesus' life, ministry, teaching, and death bring about continuity with the Old Testament, yet there's also a sense of transformation here as Jesus transforms our understanding of the Old Testament law. And in case we need some additional clarification, in verse 18, Jesus reiterates that not a single iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. There is a God-givenness to every iota and dot of the Old Testament, of every letter and apostrophe. Each word has been inspired by God, or as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Jesus is saying here, I come with all authority on heaven and on earth, and I get to define those who enter the kingdom of heaven. I get to define how those kingdom citizens will walk among this worldly kingdom. 
and consequently how the world is going to react to them. And I get to define how the Old Testament law now applies. Verses 19 and 20 give two key descriptions as to how kingdom citizens are to be transformed in their understanding of the law. For one, we are warned to not relax the commandments, but to do them and teach them. Righteousness matters. Holiness matters. At the same time, Jesus tells that his disciples must have righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, from our 2021 position, we often think of the Pharisees and scribes as the bad guys of the Gospels, those who are out to get Jesus and oppose or question him at every opportunity. However, for Jesus' original disciples and audience, they would have thought of the scribes and Pharisees as the good guys, the religious conservatives, who held to the religious practices and convictions that the larger culture, namely that of the Roman conquerors, would have laughed at. Yet here Jesus is calling his kingdom citizens to be more righteous than their religious leaders. Now, I'm not sure about you, but if I was told by Jesus that I needed to be more righteous than Billy Graham and Elizabeth Elliot and John Piper to enter the kingdom of heaven, I would be shaking in my boots a bit. I fall so short. And to drive home this point that we all fall short, Jesus turns to six examples of Old Testament laws that the gospel of the kingdom of heaven enlightens. Now, through these examples, we'll see some similar patterns. First, we'll hear Jesus repeat the phrase, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Here, Jesus is exposing his kingdom authority. He alone has the ability to give the proper interpretation of the law. Because he alone is God incarnate. Because he has come to fulfill the law, he gets to call the shots. And secondly, we'll see a pattern of Jesus exposing our hearts. Jesus is, of course, concerned with our outward walk, as we saw in verse 19. But he is just as concerned with our heart. Jesus would tell us, I'm glad you haven't murdered, but is your heart seeped in anger? I'm glad you haven't committed adultery, but has your heart wandered from faithfulness? Jesus forces us to take a look at our lives and hearts and to change the question from how close can I get to the line to how far can I flee from it? Jesus is not calling us to try harder to earn our place with God, but is calling us to pay attention to what is going on inside of our hearts and to come to a place of wholeness where our inside and our outside match. As Jesus will say later in the Sermon on the Mount, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit and a diseased tree cannot bear good fruit. The fruit of our lives reveals the state of our hearts. With all of that in mind, let's jump into the first of these examples, reading verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you remember that your brother has something against you, oh, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. In these verses, Jesus pulls back the curtain to show us the progression from root to fruit, from our hearts to our behavior. The Old Testament law condemns murder, but Christ is elevating the root of murder, anger, as equally liable to judgment. 
Not only that, but he recognizes that when we are given over to the fleshly sin of anger, our relationships, our worship, and our testimony will be inhibited. There is a call to awkward reconciliation, to pausing in the act of sacrificing to the Lord to pursue reconciliation with a brother. There is a call to pursuing peace for the sake of your public witness before the watching world. Jesus is calling his kingdom citizens to a radical righteousness that will leave an impression on the watching world. Let's turn to our second example, verses 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, few acts of adultery ever begin without first a wandering of the heart from faithfulness. The fruit is public, visible. But so often the drifting of a heart begins in the unseen, private world of our thoughts. And as Jesus implores, the heart matters just as much as the action. So then what are we to do? Jesus tells that if one of our members of our body causes us to sin, we are to tear it out and throw it away. Does he really want us to walk around with an eye patch and a limp? And even more than that, if it is our heart that is where the root of this sin begins, how are we to radically amputate that? Jesus is not telling us to start hacking off our hand or, in the age of smartphones, our thumbs, but he's calling us to take a radical view of our sin, to take it seriously, and to do all that is necessary to flee from it to mourn over our sin and to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be willing to cut off whatever is necessary to walk in wholeness and purity. Moving along to verses 31 to 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Divorce and remarriage. Sticky. Um, thankfully, this is not the only time that Jesus taught on divorce. We'll see it again in Matthew 19 with a bit more explanation. However, just looking at these verses at hand, it is clear that divorce was not the plan for marriage. Jesus is showing us the beautiful, high view of marriage that God has. Similar, now, similar to our day, at the time, divorce was permitted for almost any reason. All that was required was a certificate. The question people were asking was, how lightly can I hold marriage? Whereas here, Jesus is charging us to view marriage as sacred, as a lifelong commitment, and as a picture of Christ and his love for the church. Looking at verses 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is, it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Jesus is charging us here to truly mean what we say. Instead of asking, how lightly can I view my words? He's calling us to kingdom righteousness. He is stating that we don't need to make big lofty oaths to prove our genuine intent. No need for playground pinky swears. But we should be known to keep our words so that all that is needed is a simple yes or no. 
Now, I was convicted by these verses with something as simple as how I talk with my boys. So often, Noah will ask for my help with something, and I'll reply, I'll be there in a second, when I really don't have any intention to be there in a second. I'm just trying to finish the job I'm at, and then I'll go over. But you know what? Our words matter to Jesus, and they should matter to us. Looking at verses 38 through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. This phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, was meant in the Mosaic law not to sanction revenge, but to make sure that the legal punishment did not exceed the crime. Jesus is again calling us to walk in radical righteousness, to not demand that which we deserve or are owed, but instead to go above and beyond in our extension of mercy, our pursuit of peace, no matter what the personal cost. Now finally, let's look at our last example here. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brother, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, in some ways, this final example serves to summarize the thrust of Jesus' words on the righteousness of kingdom citizens. Above all, we are called to love, even our enemies. Just as our Father gives the good gifts of sun and rain to those who love him and to those who defy and reject him, we are called to love those who hate us, those who persecute us. In summary, Jesus charges us to be perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. As we have seen in these examples, our walk matters. Our hearts matter. You are not to try to find the bare minimum line of obedience. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let us pray for this to be our heart's desire. Let us pray that the Spirit would be enabling us to see our sin and to hate it that the Spirit would be enabling us to live wholly set-apart lives, desiring to be like our King, Jesus Christ, and to walk in this world as citizens of His upside-down kingdom. And when we fall short, as we will, when our hearts do not match our walk, when we are not living out the radical righteousness that we as kingdom citizens are called to, let us turn to Jesus. Let us see our spiritual poverty. Let us grieve over our sin. Let us humbly repent and let us be comforted. Let us receive mercy. Let us be called sons of God, citizens of the kingdom. Let me pray. Lord God, we know that the law's demands are humanly impossible. We know that these words of Jesus are humanly impossible, not only from an outward obedience focus, but so much more so from an inward heart focus. We know that on our own, we cannot meet a single one of these charges. We cannot exhibit the character traits of kingdom citizens. We cannot stand steadfast, set apart in a world that will reject and persecute us for your sake. We cannot respond righteously from an external standpoint, but even more so when we turn the attention to our hearts. 
So help us, Lord. Help us to abandon our efforts to do these things on our own and help us to come humbly to the feet of Jesus. Thank you for his death and resurrection. Thank you that because Jesus met your perfect standard of righteousness and paid the penalty that our sin and our wickedness deserves, we can now stand before you justified. Help us to live in this world, to desire nothing more than to live as kingdom citizens in this broken world until you call us home to the kingdom. Amen.